What they sell is, I would say, like a God view mode for the world, if that makes sense. It's a map and you draw a shape on the map and it will show you every device that was in that area during a specified time frame. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about location data. Across the world, from country to country, your location data, where you are, where you've been, what stores you visit, what restaurants you frequent, what cities you've dropped down in for vacation, all of that information is extremely valuable to a rapidly growing industry that was reportedly responsible for $16 billion worth of transactions last year. But already I can hear some of you saying, wait a minute, how is there a $16 billion industry and I can't name a single company in it? Isn't that strange? Also, is everyone making money except me? And that questions for a different podcast. But you're largely right about the strangeness of this all. As a brief comparison point, in 2022, paid subscriptions for music streaming services reportedly crossed the $10 billion mark for the first time. Another comparison, it's estimated that eggs, yes, just regular eggs as an industry, are also now responsible for about $10 billion of business. And here's the point. I bet that you can name more music streaming services than you can name location data brokers. I bet you can point to more eggs in your home right now than you can list the names of companies that collect, purchase, and sell your location data. This is not your fault. The intricate, at times automatic, blindingly fast machinery that grabs, packages, and sells your location data happens away from your view. And it's largely done in an effort to, what else, (laughs) sell you targeted ads. I am sorry, this isn't a targeted ads story, but it, it kind of is. Your location data is considered valuable to companies that want to advertise to you. Whether you visit one department store instead of another, whether you can afford the clothes in one of those stores instead of the other, whether you get in your car to eat out every weekend or every weeknight, whether you travel for work or work from home, maybe even whether you stop at a drive-thru on the way back from the office. All of that data is valuable to companies, as when it is put together, it can reveal some things about you that might make you more likely to buy a certain product. But as we're going to learn today, that data is also valuable to cops. This is a sometimes complex story because we will need to get into how all this data is collected, how it's put together, and who is selling it to who. 
also a simple story in its end result. A pattern of our lives is being sold and it's often being bought without safeguards. To explain all of this today, I invited Bennett Ciphers, Special Advisor to Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, onto the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Last year, Ciphers, along with several of his colleagues, uncovered a data location broker that primarily sold access to Americans' location data to local law enforcement agencies. And it's important to note that this type of local investigation hadn't been done before, or at least hadn't produced the results that we're going to talk about today. In fact, the very impetus for this episode came last month when the director of the FBI, a man named Christopher Wray, admitted for the first time before Congress that the FBI had, yes, purchased Americans' location data. As Wray said at the time, quote, To my knowledge, we do not currently purchase commercial database information that includes location data derived from internet advertising. I understand that we previously, as in the past, purchased some information for a specific national security pilot project, but that's not been active for some time, end quote. And after that admission, I thought, well, that's a bombshell, but in speaking with ciphers, it became clear that we kind of knew this about the FBI. The significant thing wasn't that, wow, we just learned the FBI was doing this because you know, public records have sort of trickled out over the past two or three years that indicated yet that the FBI has several very valuable contracts with companies which we know, you know, their only business is selling location data. Yes, there's a story in how the FBI admitted to this purchase. But there's a difference between what we seemingly knew about the FBI and what EFF found out about a company called Fog Data Science. And to really capture why it's so concerning that data like this gets sold to law enforcement without a warrant, I think it's important to hear how Cyphers described the alleged value of location data from the very types of companies that sell it, be it to marketers or real estate firms or hedge funds looking for a competitive advantage in their investments or police. The only limit is your imagination uh, as one of these companies. And I think the companies that sell this data will will say that you know you can use this to predict anything about any industry or anyone if you're just smart enough. Today's episode is about fog data science. As far as we know, it only does one thing, and that is buying location data, cell phone location data, and packaging it and reselling it to law enforcement. Anytime we have things like this, and even when I was looking up how the location data broker industry works, it all feels so amorphous and it feels so difficult to like understand because like you said just right here, right, their entire business is buying up location data and then packaging it to law enforcement. And that's like one sliver right there. But the bigger question I have is sort of like, how does this happen? And that's kind of what's powering this question right here, which is how does fog data science actually <laughs> obtain location data? I, I, is it just out there for the picking? Where does it come from? 
why is it so easy? But, you know, kind of narrowing down again, how does Fog Data Science obtain location data? Sure. Um, so let me preface this with no one really knows for sure. You know, this is <laughs> the company refused all our requests to comment, but we, we have some pretty good guesses. In a lot of emails, they talk about having a data partner, which is uh, Ventel, the company called Ventel. And Ventel is a pretty big player. They're kind of like the main character of this industry, which sells location data to government agencies more generally. Ventel is a subsidiary of a marketing company called Gravy Analytics. Gravy buys and repackages and sells location data to sort of the usual suspects in the data broker industry, which is like hedge funds, marketers, Fortune 50 companies, that kind of thing. And then it has this subsidiary called Ventel, which just deals with government customers. And so Ventel is the company that we previously knew was working with the FBI. We have records that show that they worked with, you know, several different parts of the DHS, with the Drug Enforcement Administration, with ICE, with the Secret Service, Customs and Border Patrol, with parts of the Department of Defense as well. And so it seems like what was happening was Ventel was licensing or selling or somehow sharing its data with Fog, and then Fog was selling that to local law enforcement primarily. So for whatever reason, we don't have any evidence that Ventel ever deals with local cops, but Fog does, and it seems like it's doing that with Ventel's data. I think it's important to just kind of hammer on really quickly that the organizations, the agencies that you named as having known contracts with Ventel, right? The FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, ICE, the Secret Service, Customs and Border Patrol, segments of the Department of Defense. That's everyone. (laughs) It's it's pretty much, it's everyone that you would be concerned about. (laughs) Right, Um, right. There's there's no one in there that you're like, oh, it's the National Endowment for the Humanities? Okay, interesting. (laughs) Already, it's wild to see how big this is and how segmented it is. There's gravy analytics, and like you said, they're, selling location data for what we assume, like what we're more used to. You know, we're going back to Ventel, right? They're this massive kind of supplier. And like you said, the data goes towards uh, Fog Data Science. And then Fog Data Science is sort of like the boots on the ground for local law enforcement. But before we get there, how does Ventel get the data? Right, right. So yeah, Ventel... I mean, all the, where do any of these companies get their data, right? Yeah, exactly. The answer, as far as we know, is apps. To the best of our knowledge, the main source of location data these days, especially like the really precise location data, it's not coming from the cell phone company directly. It's not coming from Google or Facebook directly, although I'll get to that. It's coming from third-party apps that have access to your location for one reason or another. So this will be like, weather apps, family safety apps. There's one called Life360 that's been reported on a good deal. Dating apps, Grindr has been reported on as well. Any app that has some kind of reason to ask for location access, there's a good chance that it is turning around and quote unquote sharing or selling that data to a company downstream. So that's the first level. At the second level, there's kind of two different ways that the data gets shared, two different sorts of relationship that that first level app might have with the downstream companies like Gravy Analytics and Ventel. The first is a standard, you know, data broker relationship where 
a company like Xmode had this thing on their website where you would put in an estimate of your monthly active users and then Xmode would tell you how much money they would pay you as the app developer for access to that data. And it was something like, I think, $3 per thousand users or something like that. So yeah, there's a few companies out there who will pay apps directly to install what's called an SDK, a little piece of code into their app. And then whenever that app is open or running in the background, it will just constantly be streaming data to the data broker and the data broker will pay them for that relationship. The second category of relationship is more indirect and it's through the targeted advertising ecosystem more generally. So targeted ads are mostly served in these global real-time auctions often through a protocol that's called real-time bidding or RTB. So basically, you know, the way it works is on one side you have tens or hundreds of thousands of different apps that want to serve ads, right? Like they every free app monetizes with ads and each of them wants to show ads to their users. And then on the other side you have tens of thousands of different advertisers, right? Like all the companies that want to show ads to people. And there's just way too many connections to be made for like the individual advertisers to be talking to the individual apps that are serving ads, right? Like there has to be some kind of intermediary that takes all the people who want to show ads and all the people who want to sell ad space and connects them. And that has to happen really quickly, basically instantaneously, billions of times per day. Anytime anyone opens an app or flips to a new page or, you know, navigates to a new website, new ads have to be shown. And the way that happens is real-time bidding. And so an app will sign up with what's called a supply-side platform. You know, the supply is the ad space, like is the users. You are the supply. And that company will install their code in the app. And anytime there's an opportunity to show an ad, the supply-side platform will gather up all the information it has from the context of the app. So that'll be like the size and shape of the ad space, plus the unique identifier for the user, plus any other information that the app might know about the user, which includes location data, if that's available. It will package up all that information in what's called a bid request, which is just sort of like a little spreadsheet that says, hey, this is what we know about this user and this ad, who wants to buy it? And it will distribute that bid request via what are called ad exchanges to the thousands and thousands of potential advertisers who might be interested in buying that ad space. The advertisers will each, I mean, they'll have computers that do this, but they will look at the potential ad space. They'll you know, say like, all right, what kind of people are we trying to reach? What kind of ads do we want to show? How much are we willing to pay? They will bid on that ad space. You know, Then the auction wraps up, someone wins, the advertiser pays a couple of fractions of a penny to the app and the person gets shown an ad. So, you know, that process is happening billions of times a day all over the place in all these different apps. But the critical part there is that when the bid request is shared, you know, that has a lot of information about you. That has information about your device ID, what app you're using, what you might be doing in that app, like what page you're on. And if the app has access to your location data, that bid request probably also carries location data. And so that means, you know, when you're using apps, even if the app isn't 
directly partnered with a data broker and streaming your location to a company all the time, it still could be broadcasting your location essentially to all kinds of different people like data brokers and advertisers and everyone in between every time it loads up a new ad. So the data that gets shared in that way is called bidstream data in the industry. And it's a little less reliable. You know, you don't have that like constant stream of information that you would get from a, a more direct relationship, but it covers a lot more ground. So a data broker might have a direct relationship with a couple hundred different apps, but then it can also sort of sweep up data from tens or even hundreds of thousands of other apps via the bitstream. <laughs> Sometimes when I hear like a distillation of modern day advertising, I'm just like, <laughs> oh, oh man, how did we get here? You know, and it's, it's, yeah. it's so insane. The things that you that you described, I think this first model, right, this SDK model, where a company can go directly to an app maker and say, look, we're going to pay for this data. And that feels a lot like making a medication and going directly to a doctor's office. And just like, we're cutting out the middleman. We made this. It feels that way. It's not the exact same thing, right? The different things are happening with who's the maker and who's the buyer. And then that at least is like, okay, I can connect those bridges. And then we have the real-time bidding process, which just feels so opaque. There's so much minutia within minutia, and so many things are happening billions of times you know, a day. And every time I think about real-time bidding, I always think of it as like, the problem was that we had with the internet created infinite billboards. And we don't have infinite people. And so we couldn't have a person literally reviewing ad proposals and matching ads with ad space. Like it just, it, this wasn't Mad Men. There's too much. And so we decided much like you can do on eBay right now, right? Where you say, look, I'm going to put a bid in, but if someone beats this bid, I'm going to say that I'm going to top it automatically. Uh, there's going to be an auto competitive bid. And that kind of idea is baked into real-time bidding where we're saying, look, um, people are just going to bid for something. It's going to happen automatically. Like you said, there's there's machines doing this. And it's happening, like real-time bidding is an auction that is trying to keep up with infinity. And that's terrifying in its own way. Um, and it's it has so much data that it's combining and packaging that I think it can also get a bit confusing as to understand, like you were saying, you know, there's, there's a lot of data in there about you. There's a lot of things that can be found out about you. It's been packaged for that exact reason. But I think whenever we talk about these things, people maybe lose the sight and they think in very simple terms of, okay, is my name in there? That's kind of what the question I'm asking here is, you know, with this type of location data that is getting purchased and sold repeatedly, is it granular? I don't know if granular is the right word. Does it know my name? And importantly, does it matter if it doesn't? Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends on who the subject is. What it are you worried about knowing your name? The, the individual kind of quanta of information that go out, like the bid request that has, it'll have your device ID, which is like your ad ID on your phone, or your cookie ID in your browser, and it'll have 
a little bit of contextual information. It probably won't have your name. Very rarely will that ever have, you know, your name or other, like it'll never have your social security number or whatever people might be really concerned about. But, you know, on the other side, these companies are sitting and gathering data and listening and collecting these hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of little pings that get broadcast by your device over time. And because they have a device ID or a cookie ID, they can put that all together into a profile and say like, all right, here are all the things we know about this device. They use these apps at these times. They live in this place. They travel here sometimes. They work here. They go to school here. They've bought these things. And sometimes little bits of information do kind of slip through. Like sometimes you might log into an app using your email address or you might buy something and put in your address. And again, it's it's hard for me to speak in absolutes here, but that information does kind of trickle out and eventually someone will find out that this device ID is associated with this email address. This email address is associated with this physical address. This physical address is associated with this name, with this car, with this license plate. And because, you know, all this information is just sort of flooding out and ending up in all kinds of different hands, there is a, another sort of cottage industry called identity resolution that what it does is puts together these disparate identifiers and takes all these little bits and pieces that have trickled out over time and puts them together and says like, all right, give us a cookie ID and we'll give you an email address or give us an email address. <laughs> <laughs> will give you all the cookies that we've ever seen associated with it, all the device IDs we've ever seen associated with it, you know, all of the physical addresses, all of the known associations, all of the whatever it is, right? Like all the interests we've ever interpreted that this person has. And so, yeah, <laughs> I think the, the answer is they probably do know your name if they want to. Just the idea that there's, of course, you said this cottage industry of like, look, there is a lot of disparate data out there that isn't automatically associated. So obviously there's room for someone to come in and say like, right. we're going to do right. that. Like we're going to market inefficiency <laughs> that your name isn't on every bid request. <laughs> That's terrible. That's depressing. I wanted to steer back to fog data science, right? And like you were saying earlier, it seems like Fog Data Science's uh, whole purview here is to sell data to local law enforcement, uh, to create a service that is attractive to local law enforcement. And my question is, okay, so what did they offer, right? What did Fog Data Science say they could do for law enforcement? Well, <laughs> what they sell is, I would say like a God view mode for the world, if that makes sense. It's a map and you draw a shape on the map and it will show you every device that was in that area during a specified time frame. And then you can click on a device and then it will show you everywhere that that device has been for as long as fog data has access to that device's history. It's actually very simple. That's, that's what it does. You can 
look for a specific device and say like, I want to know everywhere this device has been, or you can look at a specific area and a specific time and say, I want to know all the devices that were here at this place in time. And you can, you know, go back and forth between those two queries to be like, okay, all the people who were here at this time, I want to know where they went afterwards. I want to know where they sleep. You know, then I want to, I can draw more shapes around the houses where those people slept and find out which devices cohabitate with them and then look where those devices go and you know go back and forth, that kind of a thing. That's what they do. If you look at their marketing materials, they sort of promise more stuff too. Like they talk about predictive analytics and sort of vague AI futury stuff, but we didn't really see any evidence that they were doing anything more advanced than what I just described, which is scary enough to me on its own. Yeah. And the power that you said there of, like you said, drawing a shape, you know, on a map, there's, there's two types there. There's like drawing the shape and seeing all the devices that had been in that area, in that location. And then also selecting a single device ID and seeing where it had been and where it had traveled and, you know, a little, a little line of, of where we are and where we've been and what we've visited. And, and that could be obviously where our homes are and where our workplaces are and where we go for healthcare and where we drop off our kids for daycare and where we eat. And I mean, it just creates, it creates something that I saw that fog data science actually touts. It reveals a quote unquote pattern of life. And that's insane to me that that's the marketing language. Look at this. This is, this that's something I would hide, you know, if I had uh, like mistakenly created that and put it into the world, I'd be like, Oh no, 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 no. Like we can't, I would be like, we have to destroy it. It reveals a pattern of life. And this is the benefit kind of on there. I, I was curious just cause you brought it up, choosing a location, drawing a shape on a map. Do we know if there's any restrictions? Like, is there a restriction of like, Oh, sorry, that's too big. You can't make something that's like 16 square miles uh, or like, all of San Francisco. Do we know if there's any limitations on that? Yeah. Well, so the only thing we know is from, they have this this technical document that we got that's sort of like the, the terms of service almost and like what Fog promises that it can deliver and what it doesn't promise. And there, I think it says it can't return more than 100,000 data points in any query. And there are some, I forget what the, there is like a limit to the size of the box you can draw on the map, just sort of tech, like in the code that's coded in, but we don't know if there's any limits beyond that. You know, so you can't, right, you can't get more than 100,000 data points at any given time, but you can, part of that might just be because you pay by the query. And so Fog's business model relies on people not just downloading all their data at once, right? Like they have to come back and make more than one query at a time. I'm glad you brought that up because it lets us get right into the business of this. And I want to know, you know, do we have a scale for the involvement from law enforcement? Do we know, for instance, how many agencies like have active contracts with FOG data science? Do we know how many have in the past? What, what are the numbers on the scale of use of, of FOG data science and its, and its tool FOG Reveal? Yeah. Um... We have some numbers. I think we were able to verify between 19 and 23 agencies via public records that, you know, we know for sure, like we've seen the receipts, have had relationships with FOG, like paid relationships with FOG. There are a few others that, you know, FOG would give out free trials to 
police agencies where they could basically, it seems like they could just use the tool like normal, but for a limited amount of time, two weeks or something like that. And there was one record where I think it was like notes from a meeting that police purchasing agent had with Fogg, where Fogg had reportedly said they worked with 50 to 60 different agencies, I think was the number, somewhere somewhere in that area. So like, you know, a few dozen agencies around the country, which is, you know, it's a lot, but it's not like, you know, there are thousands of police departments around the country. So it's not like most cops are using this, but it's also not like just a couple of cops are using this. <laughs> so it's, you know, d- depending on how you look at it, it's it's relatively widespread. A lot of different police in a lot of different states and a lot of these are state level agencies too right like it's not like you know some of them are just like the county sheriff or the city police but a lot of them are like you know the tennessee bureau of investigation uh the california highway patrol these agencies called fusion centers which are chimera law enforcement agencies where local police send representatives and the dhs has personnel and it's meant to like encourage data sharing between local cops and sheriffs and federal agents. So some of the fusion centers bought access to Fog as well. But yeah, and then in terms of like who still has access, that's really hard to pin down in large part just because these records requests take a long time to go through and Fog licenses are for one year at a time. So like by the time we got, you know, at this point, we, we filed these records requests back in like 2021 like early 2021 most of them and so you know all we know about is like which places had it at at latest you know through the end of 2021 how did you first know who to reach out to like who to file a public records request against yeah well so the story of how we found out about fog to begin with is is kind of fun you know we didn't know that they existed when we started looking we we were sort of this project was conceived as a fishing expedition, I guess, to be blunt. Um, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. back in 2020 or so, news started trickling out about Ventel and about this company called Battle Street and just sort of like the idea that uh, location data brokers would sell this data to law enforcement was first kind of making its way in, into the news. And it's like, all right. You know, this is happening. The FBI is buying this stuff. ICE is buying this stuff. But up to that point, we hadn't seen anything about local cops. And so there was sort of just this hole in the market where we were like, all right, we bet that if federal agencies are buying this stuff and they don't think there's any constitutional concerns, then someone is probably trying to sell it to state and local agencies too. So we pitched this project with an EFF and got approval and just started sending out really vague records requests to state and local agencies all over the country. We sort of focused on California at first. We did like all the big cities and counties in California and the California state agencies. And we sent like, uh, I think my colleague Beryl Lipton sent requests to all 50 attorney general offices in all 50 states. And, you know, it was really just like, we want to know about all relationships you have with any companies that provide geolocation data. And here's what geolocation data looks like. And here's some keywords that you can search for. So, <laughs> so a lot of agencies were pretty, they sent some pretty upset responses because we 
you know, asked for very, made some vague <laughs> records requests. Um, a lot of them gave us nothing. And I think the breakthrough was, I want to say South Dakota. It was, it was either North or South. It was one of the Dakotas. The attorney general there sent us, they're like, yeah, we don't have any relationships with any companies like this. Here are some keyword hits from our emails. And among those was a marketing email from Fog. And they attached the brochure that just sort of lays out what Fog's whole business model is. And they were, they were soliciting business from the Dakota Office of the Attorney General. And the state didn't buy, but we got that record. And we were just like, holy shit. Like, this is, you know, this is exactly what we sort of theorized what was out there. And we found them. And so then after that, it was kind of off to the races. We had access to this tool called Smart Procure that lets you, they sort of aggregate purchasing data from a whole bunch of different state and local governments, and you can search their database. So we searched for Fog Data Science in that database, and it gave us a bunch of hits. So that gave us like the first 20 or so places that had contracted with Fog at some point in the past. And so we sent requests to all those places. We also started just, you know, re-canvassing the big jurisdictions that we were concerned about, like the California state agencies and LAPD, SFPD, those kind of places with requests that were much more specific, asking for contracts with FOG and emails about FOG. That's great. This hypothesis, like this great estimation that like, look, if the federal agencies are doing this, the local agencies, the state ones are doing it too. We just don't know the name of who's involved. And like finding it. <laughs> it's so <Yeah. laughs> exciting. Yeah, it was really, really fun. It was definitely one of the, probably the most uh, satisfying, like professional moment <laughs> so far in my career was like looking just, you know, because we'd get these giant records dumps that were like completely irrelevant most of the time, like, you know, hundreds of pages of emails that you'd have to scroll through and just like scroll through and be like, wait, wait, no, this is it. Oh my God. That was really fun. Um, yeah. That's amazing. That's great. So we've talked a lot about, you know, how you discovered it, how you found out it worked. But one thing I was pretty curious about is also not to tie fog reveals like legitimacy, if you want to call it that, to tie it into whether or not it works, right? Because I think sometimes we do that. We talk about surveillance as though it's only illegitimate if it doesn't succeed. And that's incorrect. Like, that's not the way that we should be looking at things. But I do want to ask, is there any way to figure out whether or not fog reveal was, uh, let's, you know, say, quote, unquote, useful to the law enforcement that it was sold to? Totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, not entirely, but we did get a lot of emails about this where people talked about using it in cases or regretfully being unable to use it for certain cases. And I would say overall, the impression was, especially as time went on, in earlier records, there was sort of more excitement from like circa 2018, 2019. And then towards the end of our time frame, which is like 2021 or so, it seemed like the tool got appreciably less useful. And I think a big reason for that is over that period of time, first Apple and then Google did start to crack down a little bit on the ways that apps could access location data and you know their policies in the app stores about how apps were supposed to be sharing that data. So they never cut the data off, but 
a couple different agencies reference like, oh, Apple's new privacy policies, this being ATT, app tracking transparency, I think. So I mentioned earlier the device ID, the advertising ID being a big part of this real-time bidding process. And it's sort of critical to the tracking industry altogether. You know, this is the identifier that both Apple and Google uh, assign to your device when they manufacture it, when they load the software on. So you have one, whether you have an iPhone or an Android. And for a long time, it was available to every app on your phone by default. And the only purpose, the stated purpose and the only purpose of this identifier was to support targeted ads, was to allow businesses to track you, to have you know a sort of anchor for your identity so that when they collected data from disparate sources, like when data from different apps flows through the real-time bidding pipes and it ends up on the other side, the company collecting that data can link it all to the same device and build up a profile of that identity. It was Apple's invention originally, I think back in like 2011, Google quickly followed suit. Since then, Apple has sort of been a little more proactive about restricting access to it, and Google has dragged its heels, maybe unsurprisingly if you know anything about the company's respective business models. Um, but both of them are, are implicated. Both of them took active part in creating and perpetuating this tracking data broker ecosystem by way of the advertising ID. And so with ATT, with app tracking transparency, Apple finally said, okay, you know, before that they had given people a way to opt out, but no one used it because no one knew what an ad ID was or why they should want to opt out of it. With ATT, Apple finally said, we're going to change the default so that by default, apps do not have access to this identifier and they have to ask you in explicit language and say they want permission to track and profile your behavior before we will give them access to your ad ID. And this is a huge sea change for the industry on, on iOS. It meant that like before ATT, something like 80, 85% of iPhones had the ad identifier enabled, like, you know, less than 20% of people had opted out of it. And then after ATT, those numbers were kind of flipped. So like a very small portion of people much less than half of users chose to opt into tracking because why would they? And the vast majority of people stayed opted out. And that meant that apps could not access the ad identifier. And on the other side, data brokers and advertisers lost their anchor, like lost the way to tie individual bits of location data to an actual identity. This did, it seems, have a, an appreciable impact on the quality of data that Fog was able to offer, and police departments started complaining about it in our records. After hearing about all of this, I think my big question is that, like, all of this feels wrong. Like, everything you've described <laughs> feels wrong. And the big question then is, why is it allowed? And I know, like you said, Apple has taken steps to change things, but... This is one of those things that feel like it shouldn't be up to a company to change behavior on. It feels like one of those things that should have a law. And why doesn't it? Again, why is this allowed? You don't say. Um, <laughs> boy, I, why isn't there a law? That's a, you know, there's the 
easy answer and the complicated answer. I mean, there's not a law because it's never been in Congress's interest to regulate this, right? Like, it's just, I don't know. I, I think of like, I put this in the category of big business regulations more generally where, you know, there's something that an industry does that makes a lot of money and it's clearly unethical and leads to real harm. But the number of people it affects or the number of people who know that they're being affected by this or whatever just is never that big. And within that, like, it just never rises to the level of being a voting issue for a lot of people. And on the flip side, this industry, this data broker, ad tech industry, I, I kind of wrap them all up together. Like, I don't want to single out data brokers as appreciably worse than targeted ad companies in general. Like they do more or less the same thing and they feed off of each other. So like the targeted ad industry and the data broker industry combined are worth hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Like they, it just, they print money and their business model pretty much only works because people don't know what they're doing and don't have the controls to properly exercise their will. Like it kind of all happens in spite of what people would like to be happening. And so these companies have an enormous incentive to lobby politicians to not do anything about it. And on the other side, there, there's no anti-tracking industry. Or I guess there, there are some companies that make money now by protecting privacy, but it's a comparatively insignificant lobby, right? Like there's no, the amount of just troops on the ground that can be deployed for the cause of privacy in the form of lobbying and, you know, political donations and all these other things that influence lawmakers is, you know, they're just totally outmanned and outgunned by the absolutely enormous tracking lobby. And unless this becomes like a huge popular issue where politicians think they might lose real votes because of it, like, I just don't think there's enough juice on the side of privacy to force real change in America anyway. GDPR is, is a different story. You know, Europe's been more successful, although not totally successful. But yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, it's politics, man. <laughs> With that, I think accurate and sobering and pessimistic view, <laughs> like what needs to happen then to actually change things for the better? <laughs> I mean... Okay, so I don't, I don't want to be too fuzzy. I, I think that was my best attempt at explaining why nothing has happened so far, right? But, like, I don't think that it has to be that way. Like, I don't, you know, there are politicians who care about this, and whenever it, like, comes up in Congress, it really does seem like there should be bipartisan support for ending this sort of rampant exploitation of personal data, right? Like, no politician is going to stand up there and be like, you know, I speak for the data brokers. <laughs> like that's, it's just not, it's not a winning position. And so just like keeping this, you know, I think the more time these issues spend in the spotlight, thanks to reporting like the stuff that motherboard and, and, you know, the markup and yeah, uh, the journal, yeah. EFF, uh, <laughs> I've been doing about it. The more time this industry spends under the microscope, the more likely it is that, you know, politicians feel like, okay, maybe we should actually do something about this. There's definitely room for this to be made a cause by enterprising lawmakers. And um, I think Ron Wyden in Oregon has 
done a pretty good job of that, like building his own image in part by taking up these fights and saying, I care about government abuse of data and I care about corporate abuse of data and I want to do something about it and I'm going to hold a hearing or you know write letters or whatever it is. Regulatory agencies, I think, also can play a pretty, pretty big role here. I'm pretty excited about uh, Biden's FTC appointees, uh, Lena Khan and Alvaro Bedoya, who both um, have great track records of you know fighting against big tech and the abuses in the system. And state legislatures, like we've seen in places like California and Illinois, it's a little easier for activists to kind of get a foothold and sometimes squeeze through legitimately good bills and laws that regulate industries like this. And the cool thing about the internet is that it's everywhere. And so, you know, if it's illegal to do this thing in California, then, you know, companies are going to think twice about doing it anywhere. I think there's, there's, there's room for hope as well. <laughs> That's good to hear. Bennett, I wanted to thank you again for taking so much time to explain like an enormous topic, right? Something that's kind of happening every single day that we don't see and is just mired in minutia and making it, you know, relatable to everyone. Uh, Again, thank you so much for coming on today's show. Absolutely. Thank you for a really thoughtful and fun interview. To our listeners, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at malwarebytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks. 